Uh, my name's Nick. If I haven't met you, uh, I am the lead pastor here. Um, we're going to be getting right into God's Word. Um, Luke chapter 6 is where we are this morning. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. And um, some lovely gentlemen will get one to you. <clears throat> There's this strange uh, sickness going around, man. I've talked to a number of you guys in the church. Sick, and half of my family's out today, too. I hope that you guys are okay. It probably has something to do with the June gloom, I imagine. But I'm not sure. Uh, Luke chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 37 to 42. Um, again, this, is, this text is really serving as a launch pad for us into what will be our, our final uh, address on, on a subject I'll, I'll get us into in a moment. But let's read, let's read these verses to provide kind of context for our discussion, and then I'll pray. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Would you pray with me, please? Christ, our, our posture before you, before your word, is just to get low. Yeah, we know that our lives are built upon your word, but we also submit ourselves under your word. We admit that we don't see reality like we wish. We admit that our fallen hearts twist the way we see the facts of life around us. We admit that we don't know the way out sometimes of the deep forest or caverns of our sin. But we know that you do. We confess that we have a Savior who is omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing. You see the end from the beginning. You're the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega. And you know all things perfectly, completely, truly. And you know me. Inside and out. God, we are asking that you would come this morning and speak to us. Tell us how things really are. Shine your light through the cobwebs of our heart. Not so that we can be put to shame or humiliated, but so that we can be restored, healed, renovated, put back together, reconciled with you and reconciled with one another. God, teach us, teach us how to live by your spirit, by your grace, by your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh... You guys ready? No one's ready here. You guys, you know, you know where you're not ready. You ready? Come on, now. come on, come on, come on. Come on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, this is uh, essentially the third part of what you might call a mini series, uh, dealing with the subject of what I've been calling uh, merciful judgment. Merciful judgment. And, and though these three messages are meant to kind of interlock and build on one another, I'm going to have to just dive right in with us here this morning. Uh, there's going to be no real review other than this minute I'm about to give you. So uh, if you have missed the previous couple of messages uh, or you fell asleep in one of them, uh, this is all the review you're going to get. Here it is. In our text back in Luke 6... Verses 37 to 42, 
Uh, I dealt with them verse by verse a while ago. We launched into this, this, uh, this larger uh, discussion concerning merciful judgment because what we see is Jesus trying to move his disciples from being uh, the kinds of people that judge harshly, as in verse 37, to uh, be more like the kinds of people that judge mercifully, like in verse 42, the kind of people that know how to uh, address the speck that is in their brother or sister's eyes so that they remove it in such a way that they can, they can see clearly again. So, yes, we still are using discernment and judging or standing for truth in one way or another, but we are doing it now in a way that is in love for our brother and sister, in a way that helps them, restores them, renovates them, and, uh, and, and helps them see clearly again. So from verse 37 to verse 42 kinds of people, that's the trajectory Jesus has us on. Now, in an attempt to help us in this, I've put together what I've been calling a field guide, a field guide to merciful judgment. And I've organized this field guide around four questions. Uh, we're going to be on the fourth one today. But just as a reminder, first question, who should we mercifully judge? Second question, what should we mercifully judge? Third, why should we mercifully judge? And now fourth, how should we mercifully judge? How do we do this? What does it look like? I said last time that I've come up with 10 adverbs to try to describe how uh, we should mercifully judge. 10 adverbs that qualify, 10 words, I should say, that qualify uh, this merciful judgment and point us in the direction of how it actually works out in our lives. How do we become the verse 42 kinds of people? That when we talk about a speck, it actually helps them instead of just makes things worse and drives it in deeper and tears are coming from their eyes. How do we become the kind of people that know how to help others wisely in love? I gave us last week the first three adverbs, namely, uh, we do this slowly, we do it prayerfully, we do it humbly. This week, we're going to take on the last seven, and thus ends your review. So let's dive in. How should we mercifully judge? What does it look like to do this? Well, these um, qualifying adverbs are, in a sense, meant to build off of one another. They're meant to kind of build off of one another. We're going to cover seven here, but three came before it. I want you to see how they kind of connect it for just a moment. So you imagine that here is a brother or sister in your life. And you see them caught in some deep, some serious sin or some serious doctrinal error that is, is going to throw their soul perhaps on, you know, the, 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 the rocks uh, and endanger them. And you love them. And so you want to step in and help. Well, how do you go about do, doing this first? You go about doing it very slowly, Right. You suspend judgment until you have all the facts. I think maybe, but I don't know. Can you fill in the blanks for me? We go slow with these things. We don't jump to conclusions. And then secondly, we saw last time, that okay, so maybe you get the facts. And maybe you start to see, okay, what I thought was going on is going on. Do you rush in to speak and address it with them? No, not necessarily. Before we rush in to speak to the person about whatever this matter is that's concerning us or concerning them, we first speak to God. We bring our words to the Father. We get on our, our knees, and like I said last week, we say a thousand words to Him about it before we ever say one word to the person. So we go slowly and we go now prayerfully. In this, but imagine in our uh, time with the Lord, we still feel like, man, God is wanting me to be an instrument in his hand. He's wanting me to address this with them in love because I care for them. And he's calling me to do this. Imagine that's the case. Well, one thing that we clear up on our hearts now before we speak is this. Can I see myself 
struggling with the very same things? Or do I think I'm in a separate category altogether? In other words, do I come to them going, hey, 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 yeah, I know you're caught in this trespass. Yeah, I know you feel this way, man. Let me tell you how it's done. I would never fall to such a thing. I can help you out. That's not how merciful judgment goes. It goes slowly, prayerfully, and humbly. Meaning, I see that either I've been there, I am there, or I could be there. But for the grace of God, he can use me to help. But I'm with you in this. I could be in the same place. Before we ever open up our mouths to speak, we humble ourselves, our hearts, before God and before this person. But now adding to this kind of chain of adverbs, so to speak, we ask the question again, how should we mercifully judge? And we find that we should also do it sympathetically, sympathetically. So if I were to kind of build with you in this, if if humility lowers me before the person and makes me kind of prepares me to be their servant, like I am, I am just on the floor here. I just want to help come under and help build you up. If humility lowers me before the person, sympathy moves me towards them. Sympathy moves me into their life. So I start to feel what they feel. I start to suffer with the things that they're suffering with. I wonder if you know that the word sympathy is derived from two Greek words. Soon, with, and ultimately, pasco, to suffer. To suffer with. So, when we step into a person's life to try to help them with the speck or whatever the serious thing is that's in their eye, and we don't do so kind of lobbing things, our advice from across the fence, you know, here's, here's a Bible verse for you. No, no, no. We get into their lives. We, we start to feel what they're feeling. We start to try to understand why are they struggling with this? Why are they tempted by these things? Why do they believe what they do? Why are they abandoning the gospel? What is happening in their heart and in their lives that's making them do such a thing? We try to suffer, to move in and suffer with them. I want to say a few things about this sympathy. Uh, sadly, Sympathy doesn't come natural to many of us. So the first thing I would want to say is it's going to take work. (laughs) It's going to take work. Sympathy takes work. We naturally are sympathetic towards ourselves. If you know what I'm saying, I suffer with myself. I am thinking about my world and, 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 and the stuff that I have to deal with. And it feels so intense, so over, overwhelming that I don't have time to get into someone else's details and someone else's struggles. So pushing against that aspect of our nature takes work. The uh, analogy in my mind that might help you or the illustration might help you is I think sympathy can be likened to taking a trip, um, traveling, so to speak. Uh, you are visiting another person's world. You are trying to enter into their story, feel what they feel, walk alongside them, learn about them, know them honestly, truly. It's like traveling. And traveling takes work. Now, if you are a single dude, uh, traveling seems easy. I remember I would just go (laughs) wherever I wanted, whenever I wanted. Let me tell you something. I just went to uh, Phoenix, my hometown, uh, about two weeks ago with my family of five. Taking a trip is no longer easy, man. It is no longer even fun. You think it's fun. We're like, oh, yeah, you know, this sounds great. You know, grandma and grandpa in Arizona, they don't get to see uh, my kids very often. Levi was just born. He's, he's, he's growing so much. We've got to try to, we'll, we'll take a trip. We want to stay close to them. Well, you know, we forget that it's, it's almost miraculous just to have like a successful trip to the grocery store. I come back like, I did it. I did it. We got the milk, honey. 
And now we're trying to, you know, fly, you know, a state over to visit grandparents. It takes work. It's hard. But here's what we found. You get over there and, and, and now all of a sudden it's just different than being on FaceTime or, 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 or being on the phone or through email. You're in their lives, my parents' lives, and I'm seeing kind of what they do and, and what their rhythms are like. And they get to see us and my mom gets to hold Levi and you know, shed her, her grandma tears over him because she's so excited or whatever. You get to start to, your stories start to intertwine and you feel what they feel. And that's kind of what sympathy is. It's taking a trip into another person's world and walking with them. And it takes work. It takes work. We want to do the work to get there. Second thing I want to say about sympathy is that it changes everything. It changes everything. When you actually travel into a person's world and walk with them, uh, it will change your perspective on them and on any issue you felt like you needed to bring up. I mean, you just won't approach uh, the speck in their eye the same way when you know how that speck got there and why they struggle with it and what their background is. You start to feel things a little bit differently. And you'll approach them in different ways. It changes everything when you actually start to get into their story. Again, if I could give you an illustration on this point, um, perhaps I'm going to incriminate myself. I don't remember. But back in the day, uh, my wife and I started watching that show Lost. It hit television show, I don't know, 10 years ago. I got a fist bump over there. Uh, maybe it was, gosh, maybe it was 10 years ago. Am I that old? Uh, but anyways, um, the way they told the story taught me something about sympathy and how sympathy and entering into a person's, uh, uh world changes everything because here's how the, uh, writers told the story in this show. They would start you off with the characters in the present day. And you would form all these judgments about them. I just saw my own heart doing this. Oh, mm, that person, man, look at how melodramatic. Or, or, oh, look at that person. Look at how promiscuous and sexual. Ooh, she's not good. Or look at that guy. I mean, he's just evil, you know, the bad guy in the group. Or, oh, look at that guy. You know, and we're informing all of these judgments as I watch them in the present. And that's all I know about them. And then suddenly... They started doing these episodes where for each character, they would flash back to events from that character's past. You want to know what happened? As I watched, you know, events in their life that shaped them and formed them in certain ways, it changed everything for me about how I perceived them. What, just to give you an example, I realized that this evil guy who I was like, man, get him off the island or whatever. Somebody take him out. When they took me back to his story, what I found was oh, he had a father who abused him, who manipulated him, who shamed him, who crushed his soul. So suddenly now when they flash forward to the present, I'm not just angry with him wanting, you know, somebody to to snuff him out. I actually start to feel sad for him. I actually start to, to, to suffer with him. Does that make sense? It changes everything. So, so now I'm approaching the brother in a different way. You know, the things that we initially felt like uh, addressing, they, they, they still might be wrong even after we take the trip and it changes everything. We still might need to to call them out for certain sins that are starting to to, to take over or whatever it is. But the fact of the matter is, is we, we do it now in such a different way. And they get that sense. But you know me, you hear me, you understand me, you love me. And their ears will be more in tune to us when we come uh, to address the speck. Does that make sense? Because they know we love, they know we care. Instead of just lobbing our Bible verses from the cross the fence that fall ultimately like grenades in their life rather than blessings. So if I could give you a quick little catchphrase for it, let's not try to fix people without feeling them. 
The third thing I would say about sympathy is that it's learned behavior. It's learned behavior. It takes work. It changes everything, but it's learned behavior. And here's what I mean by that. I mean that we learn it from our Savior. (laughs) I mean that what I'm talking about here, moving into another person's world, taking a trip, walking alongside them, is, is nothing more than what Christ has done for every single one of us. Right? You want to talk about taking a trip or traveling into another person's world. Jesus literally does this for you and me. I mean, we read, you know, in John that he was with the Father in glory before the world ever was. Why in the world do you leave the Father and glory to step into the world after it's fallen? Why do you set aside that sort of place and that sort of uh, inheritance and lifestyle, so to speak, to come here to take on limitations and weaknesses of our flesh. Well, it's so he could walk alongside us. Walk alongside you. Get to know what you feel, the temptations that you have, and overcome them. He wants to sympathize with us ultimately so that he can be of help to us and bring us out. And that's the exact sort of thing we're called to do. Hebrews four fifteen to 16. You probably knew I was going there. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So he comes into our story. He suffers with us, but he does even more, right? He suffers for us, takes judgment we deserve on himself so that he can extend mercy to us and grace to help when we need it. Does he bring up sin in our lives? Does he bring up stuff that needs to be corrected? Absolutely, but we have no doubt that he means it for our good. And there's no condemnation. There's no flicker of condemnation in his eye. Just love just love. And we get this sense that we know he feels what we feel. He's been tempted by what we've been tempted by. And even though he's overcome it, he doesn't shame us in it. He walks us out. So brothers and sisters, people of the cross, by the spirit of Christ in us, let's do the same with one another. When we, in love, address a speck in a person's eye, we do it sympathetically sympathetically that's the one if you're worried i was going to spend the most time on so we'll move on number five adverb number five how do we mercifully judge well we do it faithfully we do it faithfully now here's what's interesting through much of my messages on this subject of of judgment um, the prevailing assumption has been that we are quick to speak that most of us are, 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 are ready to jump in and quick to speak. And I, I've taken that position and that assumption because that's essentially the assumption of Luke 6. That says that even though we have beams in our eye, we are all too ready to get in the game and address the speck in another person. So we're quick to judge a lot of us. And that's been the assumption behind a lot of this. But, but there is another side. There is another side to this. While there are some of us who are much too quick to judge others, there are others of us who are actually too slow. Meaning we see things and we see things clearly. Things that endanger that person's soul before God. But we're too scared to say anything about it. We'll just let it go on. And call it love. Now, love covers a multitude of sins. That is true. That's the whole reason for saying, man, go slow. 
cover, 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 cover sin. But there comes a time when love also confronts sin. When love speaks to the one who is in this place. Like imagine using Jesus' metaphor, the speck in the person's eye is causing things to get all infected. Is it loving anymore to let that go on? At what point does love say, man, I'm going to help you get this out before you lose an eye. I got to say something. And that's why I would say that merciful judgment is done faithfully. And I get the principle for this from uh, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, where uh, we read this. Better is open rebuke. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Do you hear that? We don't think of rebuke as being better than anything. We think of a rebuke as you come with me in that, you're no longer my friend. We don't think of wounds as good for anything. You wound me, you're no longer my friend. But the scriptures are saying there comes a time when in love, friends are not afraid to get in and say a hard word to help a person stay on the narrow path. You have friends like that? I do. Doesn't always feel like love when they come at you. Sometimes you hang up the phone or with the, you can't, you know, you, you don't get that effect anymore with cell phones. You're like, bam, hang up that phone. No, you just have to hit end really, you know, end call really hard. But you know what I mean? But when you sit back and you think about it, you go, wow, they loved me well. Thank you. Thank you. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs gives us the principle. Paul, the apostle, actually kind of plays this out for us and gives us an illustration. I want you to see it. This is 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. It seems he's written some letter that I don't think we know or have um, anymore, but he's written some letter to the Corinthian church previous to this that really caused them uh, trouble because he was addressing sin in their, in their midst. And, and, and it, was, it was something he didn't want to do, something that was hard, but he did it. And listen to Paul as he kind of gives us a window into his heart through this whole process. And think about this idea of being faithful to wound, even though it's hard. Even if I made you grieve, he says, with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that that, that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I know I just read that quickly, but you can sense the turmoil in Paul's heart even there. You can see this sort of tension that exists as a good friend has to transition from covering a multitude, a multitude of sins to confronting it. And you get the turmoil there in Paul's heart when he says, man, I don't regret it. I did regret it. I do. I don't. Now I don't regret it <laughs> because it went well. It's hard, in other words. I didn't want to do it. I struggled. I went back and forth. I love covering sin, but I needed to call it out, and I felt it, and I watched you cry, and I watched it be hard, and I hated it, but I loved it, because in the end, it led you to repent of sin, and it, we got the speck out of your eye, and it's moved you towards something wonderful. It's moved you deeper into Christ. And for that, I rejoice. You see, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so we got to know, I mean, some of us are going to be too quick to speak and others of us too slow to speak. And there might be people God's putting on your heart even now. You've got to call them. You've got to see how they're doing. Not to lord it over them or come down. If there's anything you've gotten from these past five weeks in this text, 
to come under them, to move into their story, sympathize with them, and to help. If you want to be faithful to your friends, you will at times, in mercy, confront them. Adverb number six. How should we mercifully judge? We do it constructively. We do it constructively. Now, uh, finally here with adverb number six, uh, this is kind of the moment we've all been waiting for, where we actually get to open up our mouths and speak. (laughs) I've taken us through all of this uh, kind of preceding stuff, and we haven't even spoken to the person yet. We're still just kind of going slow about it, getting the facts, checking our own heart, trying to get understanding of them so we can love them deeper. Now, finally, we're starting to talk about uh, what we do with our words that we, we, we actually uh, uh, are ready not to use our words to tear down or destroy, but we are able to use our words now to, to construct or to build up. We do this constructively. As Paul exhorts the Ephesian church in in Ephesians 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Did you hear that? No corrupting talk. None of it, Paul says. That's a high call. But if you let words out of your mouth, if you let words pass through the gates of your lips, it's because you know they're going to build that person up. They're going to be for their good. We like to believe that old playground saying that uh, I don't think anybody says this anymore. You'd probably just get beat up more if you said it. But Sticks and stones. I may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I'd like to rephrase that um, to something I think is more true to reality. And that is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can crush my soul. You have any words like that spoken to you? Words perhaps even from your childhood? That still come up to this day and, 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 and shake at your identity, burden you, crush you, what mom or daddy said, what this kid said on the playground. Why is it still in your mind all these years later? Because words can crush your soul. There's a power to them. They can tear you down. And I would wager that more of us have been broken in deeper places and in more lasting ways by words than we ever have or will be by sticks or stones. According to James, the tongue is not neutral or impotent. It is set on fire by hell. And we end up using our tongue to set fire to one another. Harsh judgment. Criticism, tearing down, fire spreads. And Paul in Ephesians is saying, among the children of God, there should be none of it. No corrupting talk. Anyone convicted? I'm a felon according to that verse. Almost every day of my life. No corrupting talk, but only such as is good for building up. And you say, okay, I want to do that. I want to build up. Given the context of what we're discussing, a person in, in serious sin or, 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 or uh, a doctrinal error, and we're wanting to address the spec, what does it look like to build them up? Well, Paul tells us essentially here, at least the basic principle, he says, giving them grace give grace to those who hear you want words that build up you want to know what they look like 
Their words saturated with the gospel. Their words filled with grace. They're not set on fire by hell, but if you could wring my words out, they would drip with the living water of God's grace and mercy. So that's the sort of stuff we bring, which means if I come to a person stuck in sin or, or deceived or whatever it is, and I want to help them, I'm not going, man, what is your problem? Get over it or it's over for you. No. Instead, I'm coming in, I'm affirming that person's, I'm giving them grace. I'm affirming that person's identity in Christ. And I'm assuring them of God's love for them and, their, and his commitment to them. God doesn't, God doesn't uh, f- you know, uh, foreclose on, on his, his projects. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't give up. He loves you. Man, there's more for you in Jesus. You are justified in him, loved by him. He's, and he's saved you to heal you, repair you, free you for righteousness. Turn and live. Turn and live. We give grace. We couch our words in grace. And in that, we mercifully judge one another constructively. Now, I'm going to go quicker on these next two. Number seven. um, How do we mercifully judge? Well, we do it gently. We do it gently. It's at this point, again, that I want to remind us... Um, at least in the image that Jesus gives us in Luke 6, we're dealing with a person's eye. We're dealing with a person's eye here. In other words, when we come to talk about a speck or some serious matter in their lives, it's, we're dealing with something very sensitive to them, something vulnerable, something precious. And we need to come, therefore, gently in the matter. I remember when I was a kid, um, I said I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, so it's hot, and everybody has a pool around there, and I'd go swimming, and there'd be, you know, chlorine like crazy in the pools, and my eyes, you know, my soft baby blue eyes were always so sensitive, and they would turn blood red when I would go swimming if I didn't wear goggles like a, you know, I wasn't cool anymore, I had goggles on they turned blood, bloodshot red and all dry. And my mom would have to, you know, break out the visine. And, and this whole process is the most ridiculous thing you'd ever seen. I don't know if you've ever <laughs> used eye drops. Okay. As a kid, listen, this is what it looked like. She would come in with this thing. And as it got close, there was nothing she could do. My, my eyes were just closing. They just, the eyelids were just going to close so that the drops were falling everywhere. Forehead, floor, lips, except for my eye. So she would have to like wrench my eyelids open with this hand. It probably had my head like, you know, between her legs. And and, and so she could get a drop in this kid's eye. And even then it wasn't a sure thing. But the the point of this is to say, man, the eye is so sensitive. What we're dealing with when we want to approach a person, it's such a sensitive matter. It's a vulnerable place. Nobody like anybody like to be corrected. Anybody like to be told, hey, I'm worried about this. You know, some of the things you've been you've been walking in lately or the state of your relationship with Jesus. Anybody like that? That's not fun. You know, you're going to want to close your eyes to that. Get away. I'm fine. And so when we come, we don't come aggressively. We don't come like a bull in a china shop pointing out everything we can and let me rip it out. We come so gently, so carefully. Second Timothy two twenty four to 25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents, with gentleness. Gentleness. We aren't firing off at one another. Back and forth. You did. She did. I know this. Like we're going to win a debate. We're coming in gently. Like a surgeon would. Very, very. I mean, it, they got all their garments on. Everything's done so carefully because they know how precious what they're dealing with is. Eighth adverb I would give us. 
How should we mercifully judge? Well, we do it patiently. So if I were to look at what we've done so far today, uh, this is always a good test for me. Sympathetically, uh, faithfully, constructively, gently, now we do it patiently. The early church father, Tertullian, once said, hear this, it is God's nature to be patient. One of the signs that the Holy Spirit has descended is that patience and waiting is always by its side. You hear that? You know God's there when there's patience there. Perhaps you could put it the other way. You know the devil's there when everything is abrupt and immediate and impatient. So naturally, then, we must ask, when dealing with the sins and, and, and serious errors of others, are we patient with them? Are we patient with them? I'm reminded of a text I, I preached a couple messages on a little while back. First Thessalonians 5.14 says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Remember this? Be patient with them all. Three different kinds of people, the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, three different kinds of approaches (laughs) where you want to admonish or encourage or help, but in all of them, one thing is constant, namely, patience. As you're dealing with people, wanting to help them, are we patient with them? In a culture consumed with pragmatism and efficiency in a culture that demands immediate results from technology, from our exercise, from our diets, from our investments or whatever. Do we have the patience anymore to walk with a brother or sister along the difficult and demanding path of sanctification? I just read that from my notes because I felt like it was one of the most important things I was going to say today. Do we have patience anymore to walk with a brother or sister along the difficult and demanding path of sanctification? Anyone here transformed into the image overnight? Newsflash. No, you weren't. Paul tells us, It happens from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And if we are going to walk with one another from one degree slowly to another degree to another degree, it's going to require significant amounts of patience. Not, hey, I told you that last week. You're still dealing with it? Come on. Get with the program. I mean, it should just be like a computer. I put in a verse or something, a little piece of advice, fixes you. The output now should be better. No way. None of us work that way. We're so patient with ourselves. Do you realize this? We're so patient with our sins and our failures. Oh, I'm learning. I'm doing better. And we're so impatient often with others. What's taking you so long? But again, Tertullian says, God's been patient with us. Everywhere God is, there's patience and there's waiting. That's why this book is this big. We fell in chapter 3, you guys, of Genesis, of the very first little book. We fell on like the, the 10th page of this book. What's all this about? Patience. Waiting. Commitment to us, sinners, loving us, walking with us to glory. Let's see what we can do here. Number nine. Number nine. I'll go quick through through these last two. How should we mercifully judge? We do it incrementally. We do it incrementally. Now, this is important even though it's not fun. Because if you've been tracking along to this point, it might seem that Christians are kind of somewhat 
limp-wristed in their judgments. Meaning, uh, we, we're very gentle, we're soft-spoken, we're slow, we're self-deprecating. We'll bring up things, but we won't really put our foot down for truth or righteousness, ever. Just kind of, okay, all right, oh, no, no. And that's not what we see in the scriptures. Our merciful judgment is to be like God's incremental. It starts slow. It starts hoping all things. It starts gently and patiently, and it maintains that through the whole process. But if a person remains unrepentant over very, again, very serious, black and white, closed hand issues, then incrementally, our merciful judgment gets more severe. It gets more significant. Are we willing to go Matthew 18 in love for another person? I'll just summarize Matthew 18 for you. You remember this, verses 15 to 17. Someone sins against you, Jesus says. Go tell them. Go tell them. And if they repent and turn, you've won them. But if they say, I don't care, no big deal. Bring in another brother or sister and see if you can't convince them otherwise. And if they, they when, when you've enlarged that circle to include a few more, that person still says, I don't care. I don't care. I want to keep living in this sin. I want to keep doing this sin. I don't care what God says. Then you, st- then, you, then you tell it to the church. You bring that before the church. And if they won't listen, even to the whole church, you kick them out of the church. You say, man, we, we, can't, we can't call you brother or sister. We can't call you Christian anymore. We love you too much to let you go on thinking that you're all right with Jesus. Because you're not. Because you're not. Now you say, oh, Nick, Nick, you, you, you told me, you, you said that are we willing to go Matthew 18 in love? That doesn't sound like love to me. Well, if I, <laughs> I'm aware we don't like the concept of what Jesus is calling us to there, but I wonder if we notice the context Again, unfortunately, I have to go fast here. But if you go back and look at Matthew 18, here's the context of his instructions there. The verses prior to these these directions he gives us uh, about essentially church discipline. Verses prior, he gives us the parable of the lost sheep, which is about what? I am pursuing after the one. The one who's gone astray. I love him so much. I'll leave the 99 and go after the one. It's the heart of the shepherd. So we're not to think in Matthew 18, these verses about discipline or whatever it is, kicking a person out of a church, that it's saying we're abandoning you. No way. We're pursuing you passionately. We only want you to be back in the fold of God in the right way. And if you're unwilling, we've got to let the sheep go. Well, the verses that follow these directions in Matthew 18, you want to know what Jesus gives us? The parable of that forgiving uh, servant. It's this parable about forgiveness where the upshot really ultimately is, listen, Peter, here's what you need to do. If someone sins against you, you don't just forgive them seven times. You forgive them 70 times seven. In other words, an infinite amount of mercy in the heart of our Father. And that's what we as his people ought to have as well. So if judgment, our merciful judgment gets incremental, more severe it doesn't mean we've cut them off from grace and we're done with them and we've hardened our heart to them never 70 times 7 if a person just simply turns with tears in their eyes and says man I want to live God's way they're back in but as long as they're heading towards the cliff we just can't continue to say it's all right keep going you're great no we we, we we want to tell them how serious it is and hope that God awakens them and turns them. Finally, and this is where we'll close. Adverb number 10, how should we mercifully judge? We do it expectantly. What I mean by that is this. Even if things were to incrementally escalate to severe measures, or whatever it is, God forbid, We never lose hope for a brother or sister. We never. We always do these things with great expectation that God's mercy will find them. 
We know, we know that no one, however hard in unbelief, however stubborn in sin, is ever beyond the reach of God's grace. Ever. No one. Not you, not me, not anyone. This is the point of the Apostle Paul's life. 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy. Why, Paul? For this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So I wonder if you've ever questioned, God, why did why'd you let Paul persecute the church and have a hard heart towards Jesus all those years? Why didn't you just have Jesus call him to be a disciple and make him an apostle like he did every other apostle earlier? Why let him murder and persecute the church? Answer, so that people like you and I could look at Paul's life and go, wow. If he was merciful and patient, if, there, if, if, if grace could reach even Paul, well, then it could reach me or you or anyone. At any time, no matter what you or I have done. So we have great expectation. In all of our addressing, if, you know, if, we, if we feel called, we have to get in, in the game and address sin in someone's life. We've not lost hope for them, ever. We know, wow, Jesus did this with Paul. He's done it with me. Gosh, there is an abundance of mercy for you want to be a church that knows how to judge without being judgmental. I want to be a church that knows, that grows skillful in, in merciful judgment. For God's glory, for our good. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. I mean, it occurs to me that some even here might feel that they're beyond the reach of your grace. I pray they would see in Paul's life the murderer, the persecutor, the hardened sinner, so to speak, that there is no one beyond reach of your mercy. And God, the mercy that you've shown to us, I'm just begging you, please help us to be channels of that to others. Even when we feel called by you to help them with some matter of sin or something in their lives. You have so much mercy for us, God. Help us to give it to others in Jesus' name.